Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Chris, last week we had pretty significant elections in the United Kingdom, and you wrote... um, a piece on Saturday about those elections, trying to rationalise what was going on, why Tories have done so well, why the you know, Scottish Independence Party has done so well, and why Labour's vote is struggling all over the country, basically. Could, could you just give us your interpretation of what's happening on the UK political front and I guess what the implications of that are into the future. Yes, thanks, Jim. Last Thursday, we had local and regional elections in Scotland and Wales, of course, for their respective assemblies. And thanks for giving a plug to the piece that I wrote on our site in the wake of that, where I tried to summarise my thoughts about what it all means. It's always important to put these things in long-term context. In the piece, I wrote about the way in which the baseline support for the Labour Party has been eroding for decades, actually. If you think about the way that party was formed to represent the interests of the industrialised working classes, the way in which those industries have been in decline for decades now speaks to the erosion of, of their base support. And I stuck a few charts in the piece on that, which I think showed that in extremely graphical terms. And it's not just that they're baseline membership is declining, the the funding of the Labour Party is declining as the last time we saw a peak in trade union membership was the year Margaret Thatcher came to power. The unionisation rate of the UK economy has been falling for a long time. I think the results speak to a number of factors, all of which are interrelated. There's no one thing. Pundits always try to say there's one thing going on here, when in fact there are many different things. Everybody votes for slightly different 
if somewhat overlapping reasons. The first thing to note is that England, Scotland and Wales have essentially become one party state and they've become one party nationalistic states. The parties that govern those countries are very nationalistic. That speaks in large part, I think, to Brexit and in particular the influence that has had on England the reawakening of English nationalism, if not nativism. The Tories are clearly dominant in England, particularly outside London and one or two other pockets of resistance in the major cities and a few bits and pieces of Labour support elsewhere. But in the country outside London, the Tory party is dominant. In Scotland, of course, the nationalists um, uh, almost got a majority, but not quite. In Wales, we've got a Labour government, and it speaks to a number of things. First of all, the benefits of incumbency. If you're in power during a crisis, people tend to go with what they know. It's the dominance of Johnson, though, and the Tories that I think is the most interesting aspect of this. And he's a populist prime minister uh, who, at the moment, is seeing that populism, in other words, the making promises that whatever you want is what you're going to get, plays very well with the electorate. And there's a mag magic money tree in which spending is clearly has the cash flowing to all sorts of different people, regions, cities in the UK. And he's promising more. And there are, there are lots of reasons why you might think that, that is unsustainable. But people like him. And all of the sleaze allegations that were thrown to him in recent weeks played very well in Westminster, but nowhere else. So that there are lots of things going on, but I do think it portends the breakup of the UK. Because if for no other reason that people who want a referendum on Scottish nationalism, on Scottish independence, are now in the ascendant between the nationalists, the SNP and the Green Party. Personally, I think that's going to be economic suicide for the Scottish People. One of the, the things that I don't think people are fully aware of, not least in Scotland, but certainly elsewhere, is just how well Scotland does from the UK Finance Ministry, from the UK Exchequer. The range of measures on which Scotland benefits from the English taxpayer is, is quite extraordinary. Overall public spending in Scotland is about 30% higher than it is in England. That's simply as a result of the English taxpayer giving money to the Scots. Money does go from the English taxpayer to Wales and Northern Ireland. And I was making this point in an earlier piece I wrote on, on the Substack website that we run. But Wales and Northern Ireland are poor countries. Scotland isn't. All of these points were made very well in an article today in the London Times by um, a chap called Paul Johnson, who's the director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, and making the points more generally that Scotland does incredibly well, very well, out of the UK taxpayer, the English taxpayer. And where is this money going to come from in two regards? First of all, the extent to which the Scottish nationalists promised more spending without any promise or any indication of where the money's going to come from. And of course, in particular, where the money's going to come from, should they win that independence referendum, should they get one? The point about Scotland committing economic suicide, if they do go for the independence route, really is, it has a, a brexit -y echo to it, in that I still would assert that Brexit is, is, is damaging the UK economy and over time is going to damage the UK economy a lot. But of course, that didn't matter for the Brexit referendum. And I think the points I'm making about the, the, the Scottish economy won't matter for their vote either. If that vote was held today, I suspect they would vote for Scottish independence, notwithstanding the economic problems that I think that it would cause. That's because British politics in England, in Scotland and Wales, for similar and different reasons, are very nationalistic, they're very identity-based, and economics plays second fiddle to all of that. It's something I think that 
Irish people should reflect on when they go into their next elections, whatever they might be, local or general, because you're going to get at least one populist party in Ireland promising you all sorts of different things. I'm not entirely sure where the money's going to come from. It strikes me that the that England um, would be well rid of Scotland, Northern Ireland and indeed Wales um, because they're not really contributing very much to the United Kingdom as an entity in itself. And for those who harp back to the empire, I guess um, it'd be dreadful to see the breakup of the United Kingdom. But if you were sitting as a taxpayer in England, um, I don't think you'd be terribly upset at the prospect of what you've outlined there about a breakup of the United Kingdom. Um, England would be significantly better off. Um, It wouldn't damage the trading relationship between England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, but it would rid the UK, the English taxpayer um, of a major financial contribution every year. So is this the way in which Boris Johnson and his people will actually make England great again uh, by get, get pushing an agenda that is very nationalist in um, in terms of its flavour? And um, you'd all be better off as a result. Yeah, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago on the site and I made some very back-of-the-envelope calculations about what the English taxpayer will save if it got rid of Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. And you can dispute the figures, but the numbers, they're just very large. And in an era when I suspect money will be harder to come by, the temptation to go down that route, I think, will be very strong. Whether or not the Unionist Party, because remember, the Tories are the full name Conservative and Unionist Party, will go down that route remains to be seen. So far, they seem to be wanting to pull out the stops to persuade Scotland not to go. But if they do, will they care that much? I think at the end of the day, that they, they as you say, they may well not. So on this side of the sea, presumably um, United Ireland is increasing in terms of its likelihood. Um, I, I certainly would have serious concerns about that because there is a £10 billion plus subvention that will have to be found somewhere. Uh, there will there, there, there is also the, the 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 reality that virtually half the population um, of Northern Ireland doesn't want to be part of United Ireland. Um, if 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 you look at just how um, well as I perceive, and every time I go to Northern Ireland, I get the very strong impression that it's such it's so identity based up there that how would you ever integrate? Northern Unionists into an All Ireland um, society and economy. Um, I, I think it would be a nightmare scenario. I think it'd be a very difficult scenario, uh, but I think it's a scenario that we've got to plan for. And certainly here in Dublin, um, that there there has got to be um, strategic thinking going on at this stage about how we plan for that eventuality. I know you have argued in the past, and I ridicule the notion that the doll should be relocated to. Belfast. Um, I, I just can't see that one washing out. It might please the unionists, but it wouldn't please anybody else. So um, it's, it's, it's a big issue. Personally, I am not in favour of United Ireland from either a social or an economic perspective. Um, what, what would you think? How do you think it would impact? Well, funnily enough, with my accent, if I was given a vote in a referendum on Irish unity, I would actually vote for it on the proviso that the people of all of Ireland, North and South, have to vote for it. So I'd be a sort of Belfast Agreement, Good Friday Agreement person that subscribed to that. 
and for historical reasons, you know, looking back at all of the reasons why you have the six counties, I think that the time came a long time ago, actually, to, to move on from that. But that, that's a very personal view, just as your view is, is a personal one. But I do agree, if I disagree with you on the, the desirability of unity, I would agree with you that the economic and social and political problems are going to be immense. Um, but as you say, I do think that Ireland should start at least contingency planning for it. It, you know, there is a read across from the possibility of Scotland going its own way, but that will set up its own dynamic, its own calls for Northern Ireland. Constitutional position will be called into question. And so I think, yeah, it's right. You, you, you really should start planning for it, at least economically. And ask yourselves the question, where is the money going to come from? Chris, um, just changing topic a little bit. Um, you have worked as a practicing economist for between three and four decades. OK, I'll be a little bit. Charged. I think I think practice practice makes perfect, Jim. It will do eventually. <laughs> um, no, I was I was intrigued last Friday with the U.S. non-farm payrolls. Um, it was the biggest U.S. non-farm farm role expectation miss in history. Uh, just just to cite the statistics, the Bloomberg consensus on Friday morning, um, 77 professional economists contribute. Um, the forecast range from an increase of 700,000 in non-farm payrolls in April to 2.1 million. Um, and the actual increase was 266,000 and then the March figure which was initially reported at an increase of 916,000 was revised down to an increase of 770,000. How could so many economists and those 77 economists that Bloomberg would be surveying would all be very well paid economists mainly working in the city um, or uh, well, sorry, in the financial services area in both the United States and the United Kingdom, particularly, how in the hell could they get it so wrong? Uh, does it make a total nonsense about the art of economic forecasting? Um, personally, I gave up on economic forecasting many years ago because there's only so much failure that one can accept. So, you know, wh- what's your view on what you do? as a professional following that debacle on Friday? Well, most proper economists, as opposed to Nigel Lawson, an ex-chancellor of the UK economy, once christened City and Wall Street economists as teenage scribblers. And I think that's as good a, a description as any that I've ever come across. And I think it will last through the ages. Most proper economists, academic economists, certainly gave up on forecasting a long time ago, simply because uh, we don't have the tools and techniques to be able to do it. And that's been demonstrated time and time again. There was a famous episode after the great financial crisis when the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, was visiting uh, the London School of Economics and the great and the good of academia were lined up uh, to shake her hand. And she actually asked them, why didn't you see this coming? And the interesting reaction was that they were offended that she could even ask the question. Because academic economists would say, well, you can't see these things coming. It's just in the nature of things. It's important to, to, I think, explain to our listeners just what the non-farm payrolls are. That's a piece of jargon for just the, it's the US employment report. It's the jobs report that comes out monthly. And it's the single economic number that is most market moving throughout the last few decades. It's not always been 
the most market moving number. You, you mentioned I've been practicing economics for a long time. I can remember back in the 1980s when the market, the market moving number was the weekly money supply data. And markets used to go up and down depending on what the money supply in the United States was. But the common factor between the US jobs report and the US money supply report of all those years ago is that we focused on them because the numbers determined, we think, the Federal Reserve, the central bank's interest rate policy. So interest rates determine everything because they help determine bond yields and bond yields are the most important thing in financial markets. So we watch what the Federal Reserve watches. Back then, it was the money supply in the era of monetarism. And now that we're in, the, in, in an era when it's the inflation rate that the central bank targets and thinks that the labor market is the biggest, most important influence on the labor market. We watch the jobs report, A, because it's interesting. Jobs affect all of us. But to financial market economists, it's the thing that drives more than anything else Federal Reserve policy. Because if wages are going up, that might mean inflation's going up and vice versa. And, and that will, of course, determine whether they put interest rates up or not. On Friday, for example, one of the interesting things was is that we got a very weak report. And as you say, much, much weaker than any economist forecast. Um, and I'll talk about forecasting in a, a, at length in, in a little, little while. But the, the really interesting reaction was the, the bond market. You'd have thought that if the, if the economy is weak, which is what a weak jobs report says, that bond yields should actually go down. Bond prices should go up. And in fact, the reverse happened. And the way in which we measure these things, inflation expectations, they actually went up. We can infer from various market prices what's happening to the way in which markets are pricing the likelihood of future inflation. And because it means that the Federal Reserve is likely to run a much easier monetary policy for longer if the, if the jobs market is weaker, the markets, in, it, in their infinite wisdom, decided that inflation prospects actually deteriorated because it means lower interest rates for longer. So you can perform these mental gyrations all the time when it comes to, to markets and, and overinterpret the numbers. But why, why do we get it so wrong? As I say, it's because we don't have the tools and the techniques to forecast these numbers. And the reason why we keep doing it, you and I still produce economic forecasts, Jim, is because we're paid to do it. It's the only game in town. In order to do planning, in order to try and gauge our investment decisions, corporates, fund managers, they need to have some idea about what the economy is likely to do in the future. And it doesn't matter how many different ways we tell them, you can't do it. Economic forecasting is a waste of space. They still demand a forecast. They'd be, you'd be better off describing economic forecasts as assumptions or scenarios, but they, they don't even merit the term forecasts. Uh, it would be much better if, if people understood that the way in which you can do forecasting usefully is to say, okay, well, if interest rates do this, and if interest and exchange rates do that, and government spending does the other, this is what we think will happen to the overall economy. And the reason why I put it in those terms, I, that's conditional forecasting. That's saying that if you know a certain bunch of things, if you have conditions that are met, this is what's going to happen. But unconditional forecasting, by which I mean the economy is going to grow by 3% or inflation is going to go up by 2%, you just can't do it. And the more we try to explain that to people, I've, throughout my career, I found that people don't listen. With the exception of a few professionals in financial markets, the people who actually do know what they're doing in financial markets know 
that economic forecasts are not worth the paper that they're written on. In fairness, Chris, um, if, if, if you look at the the reasoning behind the median forecast for an increase of 1 million in April, and as I say, the actual increase was 266,000, an absolutely dramatic uh, misforecast by the uh, professional economics community. But if you look at the reasoning behind that 1 million median forecast, um, all we can do and all economists can do is look at the various indicators of the labor market that are out there. So in the United States, for example, there is an ADP private sector employment report, which was looking strong. There was the Institute of Supply Management Indices for Manufacturing and Services. And the services part of that was particularly strong and particularly the employment part of it. So there was a lot and there was, of course, an observation of what was going on anecdotally. So there was a lot of good reasons why um, forecasters were so bullish about the actual increase in non-farm payrolls that they were expecting. Um, and I sense actually that um, we may end up eating our words um, next month because these numbers are subject to significant revisions. And um, in fact, in the current COVID environment, uh, the, the potential for significant re upward revision is very significant. But as you say, it was a disappointing number. It was a number that actually gave um, soccer to the markets. Uh, they, they liked it um, in, in a sense. But there's an, another, I guess, more sinister interpretation of those numbers uh, being taken. And for the right-wing Republicans who are totally opposed to what Joe Biden is doing, um, and Erwin Stelzer, uh, a columnist in the Sunday Times, um, who is very much a right-wing Republican, um, described the non bit like, bit like yourself, Jim. bit like myself, Chris, absolutely. Well, as I was saying earlier, you should be feeling really happy at the moment to be living in a Labour stronghold in Wales. Uh, but, but, but anyway, that, that aside, Chris... Um, Stelzer was arguing, as have others, that one of the reasons why the increase in non-farm payrolls was so weak was because there is a huge discouragement for people now to go back into paid employment because of the entitlement culture that Biden has created. In other words, in simple English, uh, the employment supports that have been given to workers are so generous there is no incentive to go back into the workforce. And, and a little bit later on, um, in the context of the reopening of the Irish economy today, um, I, I'd like to return to that issue about the discouragement of workers coming back into the workforce. But, but that is an interpretation that people like Stelzer and the hard right Republicans are actually taking. And they are arguing that this is further justification for rejection of the sort of fiscal stimulus policies that are being pursued by Biden at the moment, that you're just going to create an entitlement culture where the incentive for people to work will be um, seriously damaged. You right wing types always, when it comes to the labour market, say that unemployment is always caused by workers asking for too much money. Governments shouldn't interfere with the labour market because it should be allowed to do its own thing and wages fall in the jargon to clear the labour market, let supply equal demand. And it doesn't matter if, you know, the wage level that does that is a subsistence level. It, it is what it is. I thought those market, those 
market economists, um, those fundamental right-wing economists have died with Milton Friedman, but they, they clearly are still alive and well in um, South Dublin and uh, in the Republican Party in the United States. This is West uh, Dublin, Chris, okay? Sorry, sorry, my geography, I didn't get a geography O-level, Jim, so I, so please forgive me. It, it's inevitable, it's a bit like economic forecasting, Jim, or talking about elections in the UK. It, it, people always look for single explanations of very complex phenomena. Yeah. There was a lot going on with those employment numbers, and I would accept that one of the reasons why it was a very surprisingly weak number. And that's the, that, that's the small utility, usefulness of economic forecasts is that rather than saying we, we, we expected an extra million jobs, it would have been better simply for everybody to say we expect a very strong jobs report. And then when it came out, it was very weak. And then we can have a sensible discussion of weak versus strong rather than arguing about the specific numbers, which are always pretty spurious, to, to be honest. Point forecasts. Um, as I say, not worth the paper they're written on. But you can say something useful. It was a weak report when it should have been strong. Uh, the first thing you can say is that it, it could well be revised up and that um, these things often change. That's another thing with the economic data is that as they are subsequently revised, they can look very different eventually to how they first come out. And one distinct possibility is that this number will be revised up because as you said, all the other indications that we know about, and this is a bit like conditional forecasting, we had a whole bunch of other conditions that were all pointing to a very strong number. So one thing is, I think they will be revised up. There's a good chance of that. The factor that you mentioned, which I think is important, is that there are a lot, you know, unemployment benefits in the US because of the pandemic in particular are very good at the moment, certainly relative to the US's own history. And that might be discouraging some workers to go back into the lower paid jobs, undoubtedly a factor. Another factor is that I think people are just, uh, particularly in the hospitality industries, uh, some are too scared to go back. If they haven't been vaccinated yet, they don't want to go back into people-facing positions, not just yet anyway. I think there's a story to be told about businesses that at the moment are finding it really hard to get inputs. Um, these are the supply constraints that are pushing the prices of copper, wood, silver, um, all sorts of commodity prices are going through the roof at the moment. Um, and so A, they're expensive and B, they're in short supply. Talk to uh, anybody that um, needs computer chips at the moment. They're in very short supply across all industries, particularly the auto industry. So if you haven't got the necessary inputs or you haven't got the necessary inputs at the price that you would like, what's the point of hiring workers to assemble those things? So I think it's complicated, Jim, and I think that the picture is also going to change. I was intrigued at the weekend, Chris. I was reading a piece. There's a sex tie manufacturer called Crave and Crave Incorporated in the United States. And it is... You were just reading... This was just academic research, was it, This Jim? was academic research. Absolutely, Chris. But um, they apparently there are 30 different electronic parts in... In, in the items that they produce and they are having serious problems because of the chip shortage and they're trying to hedge um, those chip shortages at the moment. But I, I think that is a ridiculous example of what you're saying here about, you know, the supply shortages that are arising in many different parts of the economy. And indeed here in this country, 
we are seeing it feeding through into the construction. Jim, 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 I got to stop you. Last week you had a go at your wife's haircut. <laughs> this week you're telling us about the inter intricacies of sex toys. I sincerely hope that she's not going to listen to this podcast. It's it's lockdown, Please, Chris. Do it's me locked, a favor. It's lockdown fatigue. Okay, um, but okay. There, there, was, there was another um, right-wing Republican argument being put out at the weekend as well about the non-farm payrolls, the fact that the teachers' unions have prevented in-class teaching from resuming in parts of the states is making it more difficult for people to go back into employment because of childcare issues and so on. So all sorts of rationalizations. But Irwin Stelzer's piece yesterday was, I think, really interesting from another perspective. And it's something that we've discussed a lot here about the potential for a significant um, upsurge in inflation in the United States. And he threw out um, a lot of interesting points and statistics that I'll run through very quickly. And, and I suppose before I start to go through the list, uh, it was interesting that he took a swipe at the Chinese I'm getting scared. I'm getting scared already, Jim, about what you're going to be talking about. <laughs> he said that um, the United States is now virtually back to where it was before China included the virus among its massive exports to the United States. Uh, these guys just never miss an opportunity to have a, a go. It's, it's, it's real sort of Trumpism coming through to the surface. But but Stelz, Stelz, Stelzer, Stelzer is is a Murdoch appointee. I know, and, he is. and is one of those right wing economists that, that uses everything. And to say that the U.S. economy is back to where it was is ridiculous because yeah. the level of employment, this jobs report that we're talking about, to get back to where it was in terms of the employment participation rates, the number of people in in the country who are eligible for work and who actually are working. The last time that peaked, President Bill Clinton was in office. And to get back to that from where we are at the moment, the level of employment would have to rise by 12 percentage points, yeah. which is millions and millions of jobs. And I know I, I, I agree with you, but he, he did run through um, some pretty significant facts about the U.S. economy. You know, car and truck sales are very um, buoyant at the moment. Um, in March, there was eleven point six billion dollars worth of furniture sold in showrooms, which was a, a record month, apparently. We had 1 million single-family homes sold in March, which was the highest in 15 years. The service sector is growing at the fastest rate in a decade. That's the Institute of Supply and Management um, Services Sector Index that we've spoken about. Uh, CEOs in surveys are pretty bullion about the world at the moment. Corporate earnings are growing at the strongest rate in over a decade. So he cites all of these factual statistics to just demonstrate how strongly the U.S. economy is growing at the moment. Um, and I, I've checked the facts. They are correct. OK, but I, but I guess the, the difference between my interpretation of those and his interpretation would be he believes that this is just a forebearer of inflation and that Biden needs to back off in his fiscal stimulus. My interpretation, I think it's yours as well, is that the US economy from a political perspective, rather than, more so than from an economic perspective, needs this sort of fiscal stimulus because of um, you know, inequality and, and, and the other political and social objectives, which are such an important part of Biden's New Deal revolution. So you describe me as a right-wing Republican um, 
earlier, tongue in cheek, I hope, but I, I, I do believe that from a social and political perspective, what Biden is doing is absolutely correct and is totally appropriate given where the US economy and society are at the moment. So, um, but but it just demonstrates um, the, the really divisive debate in the United States at the moment about what's going on. And from our perspective, where it becomes really important is obviously the impact it has on bond yields, financial markets, equity markets, and so on. I must say that I am getting slightly alarmed by these supply shortages. And it clearly is, I think, the right thing to say that they are temporary, albeit they could last a while, and they will work through the system, and the system will adjust, and they, we will look back and say, yep, yeah, that was a blip in inflation. But as we live through it, it's going to be tough. I think. And every day there's something that suggests that, you know, this, the supply line pressures are getting stronger. They're extending across a whole range of commodities and indeed other assets. You could look, you know, you're looking at some equity prices, for example. But in, in the UK today, I this isn't a podcast about house prices. We will have one. But I noticed that we had some data out of the UK today that said that house price growth was the strongest in five years. So these inflation pressures are definitely out there. And in the US itself, uh, housing is going gangbusters. The, the prices are going up. One of the extraordinary things about US housing at the moment is that the stock of houses available for sale is uh, in some regions at all time lows. So you can see that the pressures are certainly there. So yeah, the e economies are going gangbusters, notwithstanding weak la labor markets or on the face of it, a weak labor market in the United States. And it's, it's interesting for me that it's starting to trickle into residential real estate as well. Yeah, he, here in Ireland, um, housing over the last couple of weeks has become um, a really um, hot topic of debate. And there's and I, and I think we're, we're definitely going to have to devote a full podcast to it shortly because there's so much going on here about housing policy and the housing bill that Dara O'Brien is pushing through the doll at the moment. Um, I, Irish house prices in the last 12 months, this is despite the damage wrought by COVID, they're up 3% year on year. And outside of Dublin, they're up by 4.7%. So there's still a lot of upward pressure on house prices here. And the thing that disturbs me actually about the whole housing debate in this country is that it has now just become a political football. Um, I think logical, rational analysis of what's really going on is gone. It's now totally political. And when you enter into any sort of economic debate that is just dominated by toxic politics, um, I think you really need to be aware of the sort of policy implications of that. But it is something we need to come back to. Um, to wrap it, Chris, today, um, I think it is worth, um, I suppose, marking the fact that Ireland has, has, has formally, I suppose, moved away from the stringent level five restrictions today. Inter-country travel is back. Non-essential retail is starting to operate. The hairdressers are open again. So that there is a lot of stuff happening. And um, one of the, the the Department of Social Protection every week publishes data on the number of people in receipt of the pandemic unemployment payment. Today, it's 385,000 people, just over 385,000 people. The first time it has been under 400,000 um, since before Christmas. Um, so that's a positive development. And presumably over the next two or three weeks, 
as the economy is gradually reopened and when we start to see from June 3rd onwards, some of the hospitality sector starting to reopen, you are likely to see a very significant decline in the number of people in receipt of that. So it's 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 a good day. Um, there's a sense of optimism here in this country at the moment. But one dampener, I think, that will be really worth watching over the coming weeks is that some hairdressers particularly have been suggesting that, and maybe this is only anecdotal, only time will tell, that they are finding it very difficult to get people to come back into employment again because the pandemic unemployment payment is so is, is relatively generous compared to what they would be earning when they're working. So a little bit like uh, the one of the explanations for what's happening in the States, the labor market here and the response to the opening up of the economy is going to be interesting to watch. And this really is going to be challenging for the political system here. Um, the winding down, the tapering off of the various employment supports that the state has been engaged in since last March is going to be politically tricky. But there is an economic imperative to provide as much incentive as possible to people to go back into paid employment as quickly as they are required. Okay, thanks for that, Jim. And we'll pick it up again next time. Cheers, mate. Great. Thank you, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 